Well, good morning, all souls. We are continuing on in our series on Jesus' teaching and on discipleship in Mark's gospel. Uh, we're in chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. If you turn in your Bibles, I will meet you there in just a minute. Just tell me what I have to do for God to actually show up. That was a question Carrie posed to me as we sat across a table at a coffee shop on the peninsula. He was a father of two in his early 50s. The youngest daughter was near the top of her class. She was a standout athlete, super involved in our youth group at church. Older son Ian was charismatic, good-looking, effortlessly smart, the kind of kid you just wanted to be around who made you feel good whenever you were in his presence. And then one day, about two years prior to this conversation over coffee, Ian dropped out of college suddenly, seemingly out of the blue, and then it was like he dropped off the face of the planet. Old friends didn't know where he was, heard that he'd gotten arrested once on possession, he'd been home for a stint, but then he took off again. A week before this coffee, dad found him sleeping in his truck down by the beach, a few needles strewn about the cab, eyes all sunk in, color gone from his face. Ian, is that you? He agreed to get some eggs and coffee with his dad, but when Carrie started asking him to come home, that he could get help, that he could start over, Ian's face turned cold. Look, I don't want your help. I don't need you to effing save me. So there his father was, staring into his coffee, just thinking, why, you know? I mean, he has so much to offer. We spent so much time in prayer. What do I have to do to get God's attention? I mean, is he even there? Because if he is, why isn't he showing up? He's got some explaining to do. I mean, we did everything we could. We raised him in the church. He seemed to have a faith of his own. And then suddenly, how did this happen? Why can't I help him beat this? I did everything I knew how to do. It's not the same language, but it's the same question we find in Mark's gospel. Why couldn't we drive it out? And it's the same anguished cry in the heart of an exasperated father. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Mark 9, starting at verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and they ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him, and when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It's often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can said Jesus. Everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. 
Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet. And he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. This is the word of the Lord. And now, Almighty God, we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would allow us to hear your word, that you would allow us to to see that our faith would become knowledge that we would trust. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Why couldn't we drive it out? Maybe you know what it's like to ask that question, and if you do, you know that it's not primarily a theological question or even a philosophical one. It's personal. And so we're going to understand this strange story from Mark. We're going to have to cut through the layers and the distance between ourselves and the disciples because it wasn't theoretical for them either. They weren't sitting in a classroom having a conversation about the problem of evil and suffering. They, they weren't at an exorcism workshop, you know, practicing their form. They were staring there looking at a boy and a father, a boy who was suffering, a father who was clinging to his faith. How can you let this happen, Jesus? We're doing all the right things. I mean, we're, we're laying on hands like you showed us how to do. We're praying all the right words. We're doing what you do, but none of it's working for us. The kingdom isn't showing up like you said it was going to. Or as they phrase it, why couldn't we drive it out? Well, there are a number of characters in this story. First, there is the boy who is tormented by a demon. In Matthew and Luke's version of the story, they make it clear that he suffers from epilepsy. But they also make it clear that this is a spiritual battle as well. And before you dismiss that as kind of pre-modern superstition, we've seen all along that when Jesus heals people, he doesn't see a demon in every sickness. But we've also seen this complex layering of the spiritual and the physical, them overlapping, intersecting with each other. And you know this too, you've experienced it, some of the emotional, physical, spiritual, and mental prisons that people are locked in, they've got more than one lock. So there's the boy. And then there's the scribes, the ones who are skeptical of it all, the crowds who are just hanging along for the ride, watching the show in the background. And of course, there's Jesus at the center. But then there's this father who's clinging on to his faith and this, there's these disciples who are wondering what, if anything, their faith is worth. And in a lot of ways, the story is about them. You see, Mark breaks his gospel into three parts. In the first one, he is proclaiming the kingdom that has come into the world and Jesus shows what life in that kingdom is like by performing healings, by these, these miracles that show his authority over nature, by bringing restoration about into the world. But when Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, we find ourselves swinging sharply into a second story in which Jesus turns his focus then on the disciples. There are only a handful of miracles in the gospel moving forward. And now Jesus spends less time talking about the kingdom 
and more time talking about what the posture of his disciples' hearts will need to be to live in that kingdom. And he also starts talking enigmatically about his death and he begins preparing them for the third story, which is all about the crucifixion and about how they're going to carry on the work of the kingdom after he is gone in his, and he's risen and he's no longer with them in the flesh. So it's a little odd that right here in the middle of the second story, we find this miraculous healing. Some biblical scholars have even argued that this belongs to an earlier part of the story and a scribe just kind of got lazy and stuck it there. But maybe it's here because the story isn't primarily about the healing. We got some hints that there are a few other things going on in here. I mean, we get no whiff of the crowd's reaction at all or the fathers or even the scribes or the people who were watching around and arguing with the disciples. Jesus doesn't tell everybody to keep quiet about this miracle like he's done with every other healing. We don't know what happened to the boy except we're told that everyone thought he was dead and then Jesus raises him up. It's the same word that Jesus is, it describes his own resurrection at the end of the story. But there's not like a postlude that tells you, you know, everything turned out happy. The boy went on to, you know, be the star of his little league team or whatever it is. The scene cuts abruptly over to Jesus with his disciples in a house, breaking down the game tapes and looking over the plays. And it's Mark's way of kind of catching us up in the narrative. You've already heard the stories about Jesus' identity. You've already seen his authority. You've already seen his power. Peter's already called the shot. Jesus, you are the Messiah. So Mark says, now I'm going to bring you into the story about what following this Messiah is all about. This is a story about discipleship. What it means to share in Jesus' ministry and mission in the world. This kind, Jesus said, can only come out by prayer. So if you are going to follow me and take on the powers of darkness in the world, you're not going to be able to do it on your own. You need to be shaped by a life of experiencing God's presence in prayer. But let me rewind the tape just a little bit further. You see, because Mark sets this scene very intentionally. It's Jesus is coming down the mountain with the other disciples and if you heard Mike preach last week, you know who those other disciples are. He's with Peter, James, and John, and then they come to meet the other nine. They went up the mountain with Jesus, those three. They saw Jesus there with Moses and Elijah. They saw him in the very presence of God. Jesus is literally beaming from the experience. And when they come down the mountain, they find the other disciples arguing with some teachers of the law. They find these crowds that are just kind of along for the show. It's a solid picture of the spiritual state that Israel has been in for a while. And of course, this is not not the first time in the Bible where somebody has gone up to the mountain to be in the presence of God, and then they came back down the mountain to find Israel in complete disarray. It was the same thing for Moses. He went up to be with God. He came down with the, with the tablets that contained the covenant. His face was shining with the glory of God only to find Israel in a spiritual knot that they could not unwind. They built an altar to Baal. They were worshiping an idol. Exodus is the story that frames all of Israel's identity. It was a story that every child was raised with on their mother's knee. So you can be sure that when Mark tells a story about somebody going up the mountain to meet God and then down the mountain after they had met with God, well, his readers and his audience would have been able to piece together how this story was going to end. 
It's the same thing with Elijah. He goes up to the mountain looking for a word from the Lord and, and God doesn't give him that word in fire or in an earthquake or in a whirlwind, but in the sound of sheer silence. And then he goes back down the mountain to confront the idolatry of the king and he gets into the fight of his life. Who, again, are Jesus and the disciples up on the mountain with? It's Moses and Elijah. So Mark is giving us a frame to understand this story. Jesus comes down the mountain echoing this famous scene of Elijah and Moses to say something to his disciples about prayer in response to a father who wants desperately to believe. Because Elijah and Moses, they knew God in prayer. When Elijah prayed, God responded. It's the same thing with Moses. In Exodus 33, it tells us that the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. And yet just a little while later in that story, Moses asks to see God's face, to come fully into God's presence. And God tells him flatly, no one can look on my face and live. Now, I don't think it was like a a Raiders of the Lost Ark type thing where, you know, melt your face and all that. But I think that, you know, Elijah, when he's up on the mountain and he hears God's voice, he's got enough of this story in the back of his mind that he covers his face with his robe just to be sure. Because the only story he knows is that no one sees God's face and lives to tell the tale. So then when Jesus reenacts this scene of coming down the mountain, he does not come with a set of laws to reveal God's heart. He comes having experienced communion with God. And he brings a way to experience that same presence without restriction. And it's called prayer. And the thing about it is when we come face to face with God in prayer, there are parts of us that won't be able to make it out alive either. Only on this side of the resurrection, it's not the bodies that die, it's all the ways that we try to hide, it's all the false selves we try to put on, and none of that can look God in the face without dying. I was talking with a pastor friend of mine a few weeks ago, and we were catching up after a while, he's making some life uh, changes, some, some big uh, moves on his part. And his last few years have just been really rough. In the midst of COVID, he lost a good friend to cancer. He had a painful rupture with a family member. He was considering leaving ministry altogether because, in his words, he was just empty. He kind of gotten caught up in this cycle of performance and praise and started to calibrate his value by how much he was needed by other people or by the, the kind and good things that people said about him. And then during COVID, people pretty much stopped saying anything. And so he started being real unsure of who he was. So his church gave him this two-month sabbatical and he started backpacking and he started praying. And I mean really praying. He was just letting it all out. And somewhere in the midst of all of it, between the hikes and those talks with God, he, he started to notice something shift in his soul. He, he, he noticed that for years he had been writing and preaching and leading retreats. He'd been teaching all about God's love to people. But over time, he noticed that there was this massive gap between his knowledge about God's love and he couldn't remember the last time he actually experienced it. This gap between his head and his heart, between all this spiritual theory and spiritual practice. Been running dry for years, calibrating his value based on how much people loved, based on how much people needed him. And it wasn't until he was alone and undistracted and no sermon to write, 
No words of hope and healing and consolation to offer. Nothing impressive to dress himself up with. But he actually began to experience God's love again. See, he always believed God's love was true. But he didn't trust what he believed. Somehow over those months of prayer, this this knowledge became trust. And I think that's the tension that we hear in this story. I do believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Help me to trust what I already know about you. In his book, Living Like Monks, Praying Like Fools, Tyler Staten makes this great distinction. He, he talks about how in English we have this, uh, these two distinct words. We think of belief and knowledge as two separate categories that you know, belief is like the more, the more personal part of it, and, and knowledge is the kind of detached intellectual part of it. Knowledge is the thing that corresponds to the head. It's, you know, what we can apprehend with reason. It's the, it's the stuff we know. And belief, it's, it's the domain of the heart. It's the, the deeply held conviction. It's the stuff that we feel. But he says first century Judaism would not have made a distinction like that at all. And in Greek, the word that is used all throughout the Bible to describe faith, whenever you see that word appear, and we see it in this story, it's the same word used for belief. The word is pistuo. And a better translation of that word is to trust. Because trust is something that flows out of a relationship. It's an experiential kind of knowledge. Until you have personal relational experience with something or someone, all that you know about it just kind of remains abstract. It's like the difference between being taught something in school and then discovering that thing for yourself. It's one thing to, to think, man, I, I really shouldn't stick my tongue to that frozen flagpole. <laughs> it's another thing to have the scars. Or as Mark Twain put it, a man who carries a cat by the tail Learn something he can learn in no other way. It's a kind of experiential knowledge that comes. But let me bring it just a little step closer. Someone were to ask me how my wife loves me, how I know that my wife loves me, I wouldn't start by talking, well, we, take these, we took these wedding vows, right? No, I would start describing all the ways that she has fulfilled those vows, the ways that she has freely chosen my company. The ways that she has been steadfast in support, even all the times that I was wrong, about the times that she was brave enough to say the thing I needed to hear when nobody else wanted to and nobody else would. I would describe how she stuck with me when I'm difficult, when I'm lost, when I'm cranky. Or I'd tell you about the nights that we spent laughing and dreaming Bearing our hearts to each other, making each other better about the nights that we could just be quiet and be in each other's presence. But better than all of that, I'd probably just invite you into our home so you could see it for yourself. What is that? It's when knowledge moves to trust. It's when knowing something gives way to experiencing it 
And so we know what it's like to live with this tension between faith as theory and faith as a lived experience. So many of us get disillusioned or burned out when it comes to our experience of life in the kingdom. I mean, we love the ideas. I mean, grace, hope, renewal, all that stuff looks great in the brochure. But when they come off the page and they come into my lived experience, my heart often feels like it's reading a different story. Whether that's because of the weight of my own guilt, my own self-destructive patterns, they they still have more gravity than grace. Or it's because the, the bruising effect of sin that is routinely violating shalom in this world, it begins to choke out my hope. Or it's because the, the, the possibility of praying in renewal, it sounds amazing, but then, well, why is that coworker still so hardened toward God? Why is that friend still suffering from debilitating mental illness? Why is my brother in the thrall to addiction that has hollowed out this personality that was once warm and vibrant, those times when I pray and I pray and I pray, but I cannot seem to crack the code? Where in the end of the story, the son tells the dad, I don't need you to save me. So you know what it's like to say, I do believe you, God, but help me to trust you. It's easy to go through the life of faith being all in on the theory, but not living like it's true now, here, today. Because our experience of life is hollow sometimes when it's held up against the kind of life that Jesus says is available and possible for us to actually live in. And in the face of disappointment, prayer feels like an empty exercise. But the thing is, without prayer, that is when faith becomes agonizing. And then it becomes impossible. Prayer is the very thing that waters the seeds of trust so the seed can be planted. But without prayer, nothing's going to grow. Spiritual knowledge needs to be something that we inhabit, something that we step into. And somewhere along the way in prayer, you come to trust what you already know. I love what the novelist Frederick Buechner writes. For what we need to know, of course, is not just that God exists, not just that beyond the steely brightness of the stars, there is a cosmic intelligence of some kind that keeps the whole show going, but that there is a God right here in the thick of our day-to-day lives who may not be writing messages about himself and the stars, but who in one way or another is trying to get messages through our blindness as we move around down here, knee-deep in the fragrant muck and misery and marvel of the world. It's not detached proof that God exists, but the experience of God's presence that we are after. That is what our hearts long for, and that is exactly what we get in Jesus. And it's not enough for God to love us abstractly. God needs to love us as we are. Prayer is how we allow that love to move from theory into practice. It's how the Spirit opens up our eyes to see how we really are more broken than we care to imagine, but more loved than we could possibly take. That's the posture of prayer. I believe in the grace of the Father, but prayer is how I experience that grace. I believe in the relationship with the Son, but prayer is how I experience that relationship. I believe in the renewal and remaking of all things, but prayer is how I experience the Spirit's renewal in the world and in my life. 
And, and the trust, the experiential knowledge, it doesn't always come in the moment of prayer. The heavens don't always break open and we hear the Father's voice speaking to us. Most of the time, prayer feels ordinary. Dare I say even boring. But prayer is also what brings God's presence into the ordinary of our lives. That's what Jesus is getting at with his disciples. That's the, that's the frustration that he feels. He, he's been on this mountain. He's been deep in the Father's presence. And he comes back down to find the disciples backed into a corner. And they, they have this boy and they have this father. And, and they've seen Jesus bring healing. They've seen it plenty of times. And, and so clearly they, they, they figure, you're like, well, we're his chosen deputies. I mean, he must have recognized something special in us. We can do this. I mean, he brought us along as his disciples to be with him, to be like him, to do the kind of stuff that he did. We got this. But it backfires. And it leads to an embarrassing argument. Is it possible that they're trying to do the ministry of Jesus without the presence of Jesus? And so he gets a little prickly with them. You unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? I mean, we read that and we think, that's a bit much, Jesus. You're coming on kind of strong. I mean, this is an exorcism. This isn't like, you know, I mean, I know you're worn out from the hike, but man, have a Snickers bar. Like, <laughs> and then they ask, why didn't it work? Well, see, they think it's a matter of technique or they think it's about something in them. It's about their authority. And Jesus is saying, it's, no, it's not like that. It's about presence before it's about anything else. Your ministry is not going to begin with outcomes. It's not like you're a CEO giving you know, God some demands to, to punch things off your list and then working out a timeline. Prayer is the space you make so that his love begins to reveal who you are and chip away all that you are not. And so he's telling his disciples, yeah, you're trying to exercise authority, but your character has not grown to bear the weight of that authority. You can't hold it. You need to be in God's presence. No one can look God's face and live. That's what Moses tells the people. But Jesus comes down the mountain with a new offer. He says, you can come freely into God's presence, but the thing is, all those false forms of worth that you dress yourself up in out in the world, all the ways that you try to present yourself as somebody that you're not, all the ways you try to prop yourself up, all the crutches that you use to hide behind, to trick everyone around you that you are somebody impressive, but they're really just a mask to keep you from being known. All those things are going to fall apart in God's presence. God wants to strip those away. Why? Because he wants to see you face to face. Because you can only be loved to the extent that you are really known. Pete Gregg, the founder of 24-7 Prayer, writes this. The most important discovery you will ever make is the love of the Father has for you. Your power in prayer will flow from the certainty that the one who made you likes you. He is not scowling at you. He is on your side. Unless our mission and our acts of mercy, our intercession, petition, confession, and spiritual warfare begin and end in the knowledge of the Father's love, we will act and pray out of desperation, determination, and duty instead of revelation, expectation, and joy. 
In the intimacy of prayer, God begins to peel away the false self. He heals us of our stubbornness and he allows us to hear the words that Jesus, that he spoke to Jesus on the mountain when he said, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The same words that he spoke in Jesus' baptism. And prayer is the space where you begin to hear that those words are meant for you. That's what the disciples don't yet see. They're too busy trying to get ahead of Jesus instead of walking with him. They're too busy trying to earn his respect by what they can do, clinging to these illusions of self-sufficiency. But it's only when we see ourselves rightly as loved that we can see others enough to draw love up to the surface to love them well. The renewal of all things starts with prayer. It's how you begin to trust the God that maybe you've only ever known about. Why couldn't we cast it out, they ask? Well, what you were dealing with back there, you'll need prayer for that. And it's the kind of prayer that's not a technique, but it's the kind that arises when you experience God for yourself. The kind of prayer that knows its own need, that is giving up trying to prop up some illusion of strength. In the end, in the argument that disciples have with the crowds and all of that, the only one who has the right posture is the Father. I want to trust, and that's why I keep coming back to you, Jesus. Tim Keller once said that saving faith is simply trust in Jesus instead of yourself. So what if Jesus is not actually waiting for us to have it all figured out? What if he just wants us to take whatever seed we have and water it in prayer until we trust what we know? Yesterday, we had the privilege of uh, holding a funeral service for Bob Henderson. He was uh, 94 years old, uh, pastor, uh, writer, just a great, great man. He was, uh, he'd been a pastor for me these last few years. As I was thinking over uh, our interactions over the last little while, I had this one clear memory that came to my mind. Uh, It happened on one of our last visits. I was getting ready to leave and I asked him if I could pray with him. He was always eager to pray. So I grabbed his hand and I asked, Bob, is there anything in particular that you want me to pray for? And he paused. Nope. Just pray what you have. That'll be enough. Just pray what you have. Friends, that is the promise of the gospel. Just take what faith you have, surrender it to the one whose faith is perfect. Take what you have and pray. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And pray until you trust what you know. 